first of all, I would like to know how many of you are more or less new, um, totally new, or in the sniffing phase, or, <laughs> you know, that area. Please, raise your hands. Okay. Would that mean that the, all the other ones are experienced meditators? More or less. Okay. I try to say something, and then, uh, knowing the uh, energy of this culture, I'm not kidding. Uh, um, we'll have questions, and uh, that helps a lot. You know, in other countries, questions is uh, is a difficult area. People are shy. And uh, one has to draw them out, and finally something begins, but it's already, you know, the time is over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is from Krishnamurti. Someone asks, "I I am full of hate. Will you please teach me how to love? Krishnamurti. No one can teach you how to love. If people could be taught how to love, the world problem would be very simple, would it not? If we could learn how to love from a book as we learn mathematics, this would be a marvelous world. There would be no hate, no exploitation, no wars, no division of rich and poor, and we would all be really friendly with each other. But love is not so easily come by. It is easy to hate, and hate brings people together after a fashion. It creates all kinds of fantasies. It brings about various types of cooperation, as in war. But love is much more difficult. You cannot learn how to love, but what you can do is to observe hate and put it gently aside. Do not battle against hate. Do not say how terrible it is to hate people, but see hate for what it is and let it drop away. What is important is not to let, it is not to let hate take root in your mind. I repeat, What is important is not to let hate take root in your mind. Do you understand? Your mind is like rich soil, and if given sufficient time, any problem that comes along takes root like a weed, and then you have the trouble of pulling it out. But if you do not give the problem sufficient time to take root, then it has no place to grow, and it will wither away. If you encourage hate, give it time to take root, to grow, to mature, it becomes an enormous problem. But if each time time hate arises, you let it go by, then you will find that your mind becomes very sensitive. I repeat, then you will find that your mind becomes very sensitive. 
without being sentimental. Therefore, it will know love. Now, this is a, a, a very intense teaching on the Four Noble Truths. What is important is not to let hate take root in your mind. Now, I assume that hate, hatred in this context, covers a whole area of negativity, from pure hatred to disappointment to uh, reactivity uh, to aversion in its various form. You know, the, the, the all too frequent visitors of our mind uh, during the day. So it's talking um, about um, vast territory. Uh, it's talking about um, basically dukkha, you know, the suffering of uh, our mind, the suffering of our days, the, fa- the suffering of our lives, the unnecessary suffering created by our minds. Um, In order to be motivated not to let hate take root in our mind, something is um, needed. Otherwise, we are not motivated. We can uh, listen to this, um, completely agree with it, uh, being um, in enthusiastic agreement with this, and, and very little happens. So in order to become motivated to work with care, to avoid uh, hatred and all, that, all, all the things that this means, to take root in our minds, one needs the right motivation. And the right motivation, back to the Four Noble Truths, is a progressive understanding of how much unnecessary suffering we create and um, to get in touch with that part of ourselves which really doesn't want it, which really uh, is, not, is not very happy that we are, you know, grinding all day long um, all this unnecessary suffering. So the, 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 the right motivation as its roots, we might say, in um, an increasing understanding, an increasing being surprised, you know, not surprised with joy, but surprised with unnecessary suffering, you know. Um, some, some, sometimes, at times, it can be a, a, a awe, a sense of awe, and it's an important moment, it's an important insight. When we see, you know, all that we're doing and all that we're doing together, you know, giving each other support uh, um, uh, to create suffering, you know, the, 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 the real sangha sometimes is such a, you know, holding hands to, um, to do it together. Mm. And, you know... Um, 
I do it, I do it to myself, then I do it to you, so that you do it to yourself and do it back to me, and you know, and on and on and on and on. Dukkha, uh, samsara. Samsara is our mind. It's not a different realm. Uh, samsara is an uncultivated mind. And uh, we are all here in the center or in other Dharma center in order to cultivate uh, the mind. Because a mind which is cultivated, the Buddha said, is very pliable, very workable, kamaniya. But a mind uh, which is not cultivated is untractable, is, is stiff, is heavy. Uh, um, um, nourishes uh, lack of confidence, discouragement, chronic, chronic um, lack of confidence. So cultivating the mind, which means um, do something so as the negativities don't take root in our mind, is a crucial is a crucial task. Um, so the real sangha, actually, is when we share the motivation for doing this work, rather than sharing habits or sharing negative habits. So understanding, there is dukkha, there is suffering, there is dissatisfaction, there is uh, self-preoccupation, there is... and. Um, there is a possibility to recognize it. This is the first noble truth. And you recognize it, and once you recognize it, you can understand it. Now, we think we understand, uh, of course. But um, if, we, if we keep practicing, we realize that we don't understand. And that's why the tool of the practice was invented in order to help us understand how much how our habitual work is in um, increasing and solidifying more and more painful emotional and thought habits. So this uh, this stuff is difficult, but is priceless. So, what shall we do? Since it's difficult, we let it go, even if it's priceless. It's not unusual that this happens. Um, we say, yes, yes, it's priceless, but it's too difficult. <laughs> so probably we haven't, we haven't really seen that it's priceless. And I'm not, th- I am not, I am, you know, I'm not thinking of special experiences or things like that. Just, just a few examples that we can put our hands into this terrible mechanism of suffering and that we can get results from that and that it is possible to do it. Um, each one with his or her own time, uh, different ways according to people, but it's possible. Uh, it is not an exotic Asian dream. Uh, it's a very, very concrete, and um, it is um, 
As the Buddha said, it is possible, otherwise I wouldn't have told you. <laughs> Which I always found very encouraging. Now, he says, your mind is like rich soil, and if given sufficient time, any problem that comes along takes root like a weed. But we should remember, uh, now it's me, I should remember that rich soil uh, means two things. You know, rich soil in a negative sense, but rich soil in a positive sense. So, uh, instead of um, putting negative so, uh, seeds, we can put positive seeds, which is part of the practice. Like when you practice, for instance, metta, and you say slowly and attentively positive phrases, uh, you are, you are uh, uh, sowing uh, something positive. Uh, and it takes some it takes some relaxation to understand this, because if you are anxious as we usually are, um, we are not relaxed, and uh, we we want quick results. Uh, we practice metta, and uh, we start evaluating it. We start thinking, I've done this already many times. And, you know, each of us could continue. Um, now this, is, this is the Buddha from the Samyutta Nikaya. Bhikkhus, monks, if someone were to give away a hundred pots of food as charity in the morning, a hundred pots of food as charity at noon, and a hundred pots of food as charity in the evening, and if someone else were to develop a mind of loving kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder, I guess a very short time, <laughs> either in the morning, at noon, or in the evening, this would be more fruitful than the former. The four monks, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus, you should train yourselves. Make it our vehicle. Make it our basis. Stabilize it. Exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Now, if our mind were not a fertile soil, uh, this would not be possible. So, fortunately, it is not uh, a rich, rich soil. He says rich soil in a negative sense, but it's a, a rich soil in a positive sense. But if we are kind of hardened around negativity, at the beginning at least, we are not um, um, very inclined to think that, this can be a, that it can be a rich soil 
in a positive sense. So uh, patients come very handy in uh, uh, in this uh, um, in this work. Yeah, these are very strong words. Uh, make it a, a vehicle. Make it your basis. Um, and um, mind you, before he has this powerful metaphor. You know, these this three short moments uh, at dawn, at noon, and in evening of just a flash, a flash of loving kindness are more precious than, um, uh, you know, an abundant um, material gift. So I, I don't think these metaphors are chosen, um, you know, uh, uh, at random. Uh, I guess the emphasis here is in the value of something which easily we devalue or we don't see the value of because we are used to different values. We are used to different meters. We have a different sight. So we, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it escapes us, you know, the value of a, um, a wish of well-being um, made with um, wholeheartedly, um, and uh, where is it? Uh, we already we already said it, so it's gone. Uh, whereas this gift um, is more important. This is um, uh, a specific way of living, measuring, uh, seeing things, be sensitive to things. It takes a lot of time to become more sensitive to a, 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 a wish of well-being rather than to a material gift. It, it is a shift in our sensitivity. Uh, we change. Our old friends do not recognize us. They are suspicious, have you noticed? You know. And sometimes it can be painful because... Uh, We've been really close friends for years. And now, since we are getting an interest in these things, they become kind of irritated. Um, I, I think it's one, uh, you know, to some extent this is inevitable for anyone who's taken seriously uh, a path. It's, a, you know, it's a, something we, we have to pay for. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> if we don't get irritated in our turn because they are irritated, which will show that we're still in the same, <laughs> in the same, in the same logic, um, a different kind of, of of relationship can develop. Maybe less less, um, you know, um, enjoying the same things and this and that. But um, more mature. Uh, uh, we send, for instance, we send metta to this person who is irritated with us. Um, why is he or she irritated? Because um, he or she thinks that we've taken away something from the relationship, from the uh, 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 friendship. Whereas, a point of fact, we've added something. But again, we can see it. The other person cannot see it. And so we better not get irritated and understand. 
so cultivating the rich soil of the mind in a positive sense. The mind which is being cultivated, bhavana, uh, becomes malleable, flexible, workable. The mind which is left alone, uh, which is not cultivated, is untractable. It gets harder and harder. Uh, if some of us have this hope that as the years go by, our mind will uh, uh, you know, soften more and more, uh, that's a painful uh, delusion. <laughs> Uh, it needs, uh, um, we need to work. We need to work on it. Chitta bhavana means working on our mind, our mind-heart, and this, you know, the, the center of it all. In, uh, in Pali, in Sanskrit, the same word, chitta, means, uh, means mind and heart. There is no this, this division. So mind-heart is the center of our being, the center of our life. And uh, we have a strong invitation in the scriptures, in the, in the Dharma, to take care of it. Now, taking care of our heart and mind can be an alien concept to most of us when we begin a path. Taking care of our mind, heart? Well, I think I do. Um, uh, how? Um, studying or... Um, being loyal, uh, there are good things. But we are thinking of something closer, something uh, which manifests itself exactly when we are meditating. Uh, we start seeing you know, how the mind works, how the mind goes from likes to dislikes, likes to dislikes, and then emotions arises, and then having a habit uh, connected to that emotion, that habit gets reinforced and uh, just fires a few statements. And those statements uh, are like orders to say something or to do something, etc., etc. Uh, realizing the power of our mind, negative power and positive power of our minds. Is essential. That's why we need to meditate. That's why we need the training. That's why we need other people who train with us. That's why we need teachers. But this is uh, very good news. We can be tired, we can be uh, discouraged, fine. This is uh, absolutely natural. But um, whenever we wake up, to the fact that we have this possibility. We wake up to the fact that this is extremely good news and um, it's, up, it's up to us, you know. To work as to have the favorable conditions. See, sometimes people complain the meditators complained. A very easy. I can't meditate. That's the meditators complained. <laughs> um, 
but there's often this this um, disappointment or whatever is often connected with an idea of if only I had the determination, that would be easy. Now, of course, right effort, right, mind you, not effort, right effort, and right effort is a, is a wi- wisdom, is an aspect of wisdom. So we we maybe we don't pay attention to right, and we get alarmed in front of the word effort. But uh, we better we better um, pause and think about wise or a right uh, effort. Okay. But in addition to right effort, which in itself is much more complex and promising than just raw effort, there are other conditions that we need in order to have the practice work, like a a, a center, like a sangha, like teachings, like studying, Um, uh, renewing our motivation periodically. This is much more important than the sheer determination. So, um, when we feel that um, we uh, would like to practice in a better way, the best, the be- by far, the best idea is to reframe this into a positive aspiration. I have an aspiration to practice in a deeper way, which is completely legitimate. You know, we're just giving words to our deep, deep desire. Whereas if we uh, get discouraged or easily self-judging, we are making things much more difficult. It takes a long time, usually. There are exceptions. Of, of course, maybe all of you are exceptions. I don't I am not. Uh, <laughs> it takes a long time to learn this lesson. We keep falling into the self-judging, into the discouragement, and we keep falling into the finding this absolutely legitimate reaction. Whereas the, maybe the aspiration can, can sound phony, maybe, or something like that. You know, the ignorance, uh, someone said, I think Trumpa said, that avidja, ignorance, is very intelligent. You know? <laughs> and uh, so it convinces us very easily. You know, this is phony, and this is this is real life. This complaining, this self-judging, you know, is absolutely real. Uh, just conceptions, concepts, habitual concepts, which we've uh, hardened into truths. This is the truth. Uh, we think we are not arrogant. But we are, to ourselves in the first place. You know, when we assure, when we uh, declare that this is the truth and this other thing should be proven, but this is the truth. That is total confusion made into uh, something obvious. Because we have a number of people who find it obvious as well, so that's, that's considered to be the proof. That's the degree of our mental freedom. You know, a group of blind people walking together and uh, telling each other what they are not seeing. It's interesting. 
So, but the soil, the soil is rich. This is part of the of the good news. Um, so we should we should um, work keeping in mind that if we leave negative tendencies to do their thing, they are going to get stronger. Um, there is this word, ten, latent tendencies, anusaya, very important, because, you know, you do it once more and once more and one more. And then in this tradition, in this teaching, it is said that the latent tendency becomes stronger, which means that the next time that certain circumstances present themselves, that tendency of ours, that habit, you know, will uh, manifest even in a, in, a strong, in a stronger way. In other words, he's taken roots, and, and the roots has gone a little bit uh, deeper. This is what happens if we think that living in a casual way is the best thing we can do. But if we see that, um, say, we don't follow the disappointment, you know, we're watching our mind maybe with the help of the breath, and we don't follow the conclusion of the disappointment, a different field of energy uh, arises. Then we start being suspicious about you know, uh, our um, so-called knowledge and our so-called understanding. Um, I remember this letter, I think it was published in Buddha Dharma Journal or maybe probably Buddha Dharma or Shambhala-san. And there was um, this meditator, someone who has been meditating for 25 years, and he says, he writes, but I suffer also uh, from a very um, strong depression. And this depression has uh, ruined my life a number of times. But I've kept practicing and uh, now things go like this. I feel that it's coming. But when this happens, I still remember the word he uses, I abstain from following the patterns of my mind, the conclusions of my mind, the thoughts of the mind which is about to become depressed. And he doesn't say, and lo, the, the, the depression disappears. He doesn't say that. He says, instead of destroying or being heavily destructive, it is something light which comes and goes, much more manageable than an overwhelming depression. So, but this guy's been meditating for 25 years. And, uh, you know, with that kind of... Uh, work with the soil of his mind, he can handle something very, very heavy, like a depression like this. But the key word is, I abstain. You know, renunciation is a word that when we say renunciation, we think of 
outward, external, renounce this, renounce that. Uh, the, the important renunciation is inside. So, I abstain means renouncing the usual adhesion, uh, uh, adhere, adherence to those thoughts, to those conclusions. And it takes a fine art. You know, if we think that 25 years is a long time, uh, we're wrong. <laughs> because it is a fine art. You know, you, you, you do it and you fail. You do it and you fail. You do it and have a little bit of success. And that is a turning point. You see that something is possible. So, um, he doesn't, this man doesn't allow these thoughts, this pattern to take roots in his mind. So they don't become destructive. This is a good example about what Krishnamurti says. At the same time, in addition to avoiding something, he cultivates the positive uh, part of the rich soil of the mind. Because this, it is an act of courage. You know, he acts with courage and he acts with trust. You know, the mind is, um, you know, is accustomed to do this, to go this way. No, I'm not going the usual way. I'm going a different way. So these are the seeds of virtue. And they go together. You know, the uh, not permitting the uh, uh, negative to take roots and cultivating what is positive. In one shot, you know, uh, in one stroke, uh, uh, both are cultivated. If you think of it, this is such a relief. You know, the, just the, 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 the mere, the sheer thought that this is possible to some extent to any of us, uh, provided there is some motivation, but if you took the time to come over here, you have some motivation. Uh, it is such a relief, such a, um, a source of hope and trust that is invaluable. You, you know, you, we can come back to the inner work at any time, in any moment of our day. Although there are times when it's easier, of course, and times where it's not so easy. But it's there. The practice is there, waiting for us to use it. Dying for us to use it. And sometimes we do, sometimes we don't know. We are too busy, we can't. Um, we, we, uh, we put life and practice for a long time, one against the other. Now I can't practice. Later... Usually it's later. I I I, uh, I will able to practice. It is it is understandable, as long as we have a concept of the practice limited to the formal, the sitting practice. But once we develop a sensitivity to what it's like to be present, to be aware, if possible, to whatever arises. Not all the time, but I'm saying without being selective, if um, 
you know, indifference arises, and we are aware that indifference is arising, just holding indifference uh, with awareness. Uh, this is developing sensitivity to what is possible in terms of informal practice or of uh, practice in action. At this point, we are less prone to uh, oppose life and practice. We see that that phrase that we heard um, one year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that life is practice, is not just uh, New Age rhetoric. It is true. But we have to get there. You have to get there. Um, formal practice is a help, uh, but shouldn't um, uh, be the only, the only help. It's uh, the basis. You know, sitting is the basis. I mean, at what, that, that is and has been my way, so I cannot uh, teach a different way, like, you know, be happy, don't sit, and uh, <laughs> do whatever you want, but be aware. Uh, it didn't work with me, so I, um, I've been sitting since the last 35 years, I don't know how much. And uh, I, found it in, I found, and I do find it, invaluable. And then from, from that place of recollection, uh, calmness, although it's, you know, it's mixed with uh, uh, non-peace, non-calmness, um, the motivation to extend this attitude to whatever we do increases. We catch ourselves completely... Uh, drifting away many, many times. And here too, it takes time to understand that it's okay, provided our motivation stays there. For some reason, uh, a part of us has decided that we, if we are still drifting away after X number of years that we, we failed, and so we better uh, abandon with uh, dignity the practice. <laughs> and, you know, it's just craziness. It's just uh, acting out of um, um, habits, con- uh, habitual concepts. We should question this habitual concept. Yes, we've been meditating for 40 years and we uh, catch ourselves many times drifting away. And probably we won't. We would not catch ourselves drifting away without all the practice that we've done. <laughs> there is, <laughs> we miss that piece. We miss that little piece. Um, and it's not, it's not a crime, you know, drifting away. It's part of uh, the dynamics of our mind. But that is a further and, you know, tender invitation to go back to being present and we savor, we enjoy being present even more. But we have this, uh, often we can have maybe very back, um, deep back in our mind, um, a rigid, a stiff ideal about this continuous uh, presence. 
unless unless we reach this continuous presence, we are unworthy. We um, so many ways of creating dukkha, so many ways of you know uh, having hatred take root in our minds because this is hatred, this kind of discouragement, this kind of being negative. Uh, this kind of being chronically dissatisfied, and so we include the practice, of course, uh, are ways of watering our negativity. Uh, we're very good at that. We know different ways, uh, skillful ways of watering our negativities. You know. And, uh, you know, the, the gradual realization that this is, number one, unnecessary, and number two, harmful, um, uh, takes time, but it's also a growing source of trust and hope, strength. See, uh, the, 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 um, the simple quote-unquote, the simple sitting practice, the simple going back to uh, whatever, breath, body, uh, it's a source of a different kind of strength. But it's very elusive because it's slow and we want, we want things to be quick and this is slow. Huh? But that guy, after 20 years of practice, was able to do something incredible. You know, I'm sure that being in Cambridge, many of you are familiar clinically with what a big depression can be like. Um, so a different kind of strength. We might be, maybe we think that, uh, oh yes, the strength of continuous attention, the strength of being always with the breath, from the beginning of the sitting to the end of the sitting. That is strength. This is our, um, you know, our fixation, our fascination with intensity, you know. This culture has a fascination with intensity. Um, no, it's going back, going back, going back. That builds up the energy. It's not a uh, failure, 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 <laughs> failure. That's a complete misunderstanding. It's, it builds up energy, a special quality of energy. You know, we, we, maybe we're not aware of that energy, and then it comes out in some unexpected uh, circumstance, and we react in a different way. We respond instead of reacting. How come? We even ask how come. So we, which shows that we are completely mistrust in what we are doing. Because we, we wonder how come this happened. What about, what about our practice? Because, again, we have fixed concept of what is supposed to happen. But practice is not like that. It's much freer, it's much vaster than our thoughts about practice. You know, Meister Eckert has a famous prayer in which he prays to God to free him from God. <laughs> in other words, from this heavy concept of God. And Meister Eckert was a Christian mystic. 
probably very intimate with God or whatever you want to call it. And that's why, you know, he has the courage to say, God, free me from God. Now, let's free our mind from all the concepts that we have, conscious and unfortunately unconscious, about meditation, about spiritual growth or, or whatever. And this has to do with developing a sensitivity, with developing a new sensitivity. As a matter of fact, it is new and it is not new because I have a hunch that it was always there, but now it can come to the surface. You know, sensitivity with to, to um, what is not negative, sensitivity to what is positive, uh, beginning with ourselves, sensitivity uh, to what is peaceful, sensitivity uh, to what is uh, potentially compassionate, sensitivity with the um, untold amount of suffering created by chronic self-preoccupation. That is, you know, a non-judgmental sensitivity, very precious uh, one of the reasons, in my opinion, one of the reasons why many people um, quit meditation is because once they discover self-preoccupation, uh, they, start, they start preoccupating about self-preoccupation. <laughs> they, they start, um, really, they start getting very much negative because in addition to all the flaws that um, we know we have, now we found out a new one, and a, a huge one. So our mind is, is um, structured, structured in such a way that at this point, um, you know, we leave. It's too much. Because we are set into seeing in a negative way. So... Um, Self-preoccupation sounds negative, and so we get scared, we get discouraged, we get negative. But this is true. This is a truth. You know, the um, continuous creating suffering through self-preoccupation is a truth, and truth will make you free. Uh, it's, it's not a pleasant truth, but... If you're not afraid of it, the sensitivity, the, the be, becoming more and more capable of seeing, accepting, softening up, softening up, that becomes very uh, pleasant. It's a new kind of pleasure. Uh, the Buddha talks about the pleasure of equanimity. He says there are different kinds of pleasures. You know, in case, you know, people sometimes think, oh, you know, Buddhism, uh, there's no place for pleasure in Buddhism. It's stern, you know, it's very austere. Uh, um, there are, you know, the pleasures of, the, the sense pleasures, but there are other kinds of pleasures. For instance, the pleasure of equanimity, of being open, you know, tender, as much as possible without judgment. This is a complete, a complete change in, in attitude. Um, but if each time hate arises and you let it go by, 
then you will find that your mind becomes very sensitive without being sentimental, which has something contrived about it. And therefore it will know love and wisdom, you have two faces of the same coin. And this process has to go again and again. Uh, if we, we are not um, familiar with the path and with this kind of literature, we read it as, uh, you know, one way like this. Uh, it happens like this. It goes like this. And happens more and more. You know, we, we uh, do a little bit of work and, uh, and it, it, something is smoother. Uh, the mind gets more tractable. And if we don't see it, someone else maybe sees it. Um, I remember uh, um, this is a practitioner and, and a scholar, Walsh. He's translated the Diga, the Long Discourses. And uh, he says, um, um, when I was uh, a young man, I, I started to practice wholeheartedly. Uh, and I went on for quite a long time. Then I got very disappointed because I couldn't see any result of my practicing. So I announced with my family that I had stopped. And then the two people I was expecting uh, less from in this regard, my mother and my wife, said, Oh, how bad! You had become so much better. <laughs> So they had realized it, but he hadn't. Well, just just uh, before having some questions, I just wanted to you know talking talking about we mentioned um, um, that metaphor about meta practice. And uh, in the beginning of the Metta Sutta, um, the, uh, the teaching about Metta, the teaching about loving kindness that the Buddha gave, which appears in one of the oldest uh, texts, the Sutta Nipata, um, he, he says, This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and wishes to reach that state of calmness, Nibbana. He or she should be capable and upright 
totally upright and gentle in speech and sweet and humble. Now, of course, this is already... I mean, someone who's like this has gone far, far, far uh, in, in, in the path. But it is interesting that uh, the word for someone who wants to reach liberation, it doesn't say he should be uh, you know, completely blissed out all the time. He says it's got to be a capable person. Sako in Pali means capable. You know, capable of relationship, capable of doing things. No, real, capable. And then it says upright, uh, uju. But interestingly, it um, emphasizes soon after saying uju, upright, it says chasu uju, very upright, very simple, very essential, uh, essential, very essential, simple, very simple. It's interesting interesting that uh, um, uh, the necessity was felt to to underline this. Uh, it it seems to me that is a key is a key feature. Um, and uh, uh, with uh, gentle speech and um, sweet and humble, mudu in Pali and mridu in Sanskrit means really sweet. So this person is very capable, is capable, it's full. Uh, um, at the same time, it's, it has a natural um, ethical presence, suju. It's very, it's very upright. And at the same time, upright means simple. It's very simple. And sweet, and not non. This, the word can be translated also as non-presumptuous. Now, don't we like it when we meet someone who's simple, and sweet, and non-presumptuous, and capable? <laughs> this is already an achievement. But what is underlined here is that this is the basis for a fruitful practice. Because in some sense, there is already a degree of basic, um, of basic ease, of basic energy. So we can make full use of the practice. Mind you, when he describes, I, I'm going to stop here, the um, uh, metta practice, the, 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 the practice of, uh, um, of loving kindness, uh, he uses sati, the same word for mindfulness. And he says you should practice it wh- wh- while you walk, while you sit, while you're lying down. Same. And one last thing. Uh, the mind of loving kindness is boundless. I mean, the... the um, uh, the goal is to make the mind boundless. You, you, you begin from something which is limited and then you want it to be, to be more and more unconditioned, 
uh, boundless. But then if you study uh, the instructions about sati, about mindfulness in the scriptures, you find that when real mindfulness is there, then the mind is not limited, is unlimited. Whereas when sati is absent, in other words, this is easy to, uh, to, uh, um, to see, when we are completely identified with thoughts, emotions, action, activities, the mind is limited. But if we wake up in the middle of an activity with a moment of sati, with a moment of metta, something opens up. And this is not a fortunate event. This is something, again, which can be cultivated. Period. (laughs) So, would you like to ask question or uh, bring your experiences and Please. I agree with you. I mean, why do we do this? I think it's a, again, it's a habit, uh, since metta is the first one of the four. Uh, we tend to do more metta, or we tend to refer to the four Brahma Viharas with the word metta. But as a matter of fact, we sometimes uh, um, uh, work at the other ones. But you said something important in my mind, because without, without upekka, without equanimity, you cannot have real metta, you cannot have real mudita, you cannot have real um, compassion, because um, you, don't, you don't have the openness of the equanimity. So you're going to, to feel a lot of loving kindness for this person, for this other person, which is fine. But it's not metta as something tendentially unconditional. For that to be the case, it takes at least some equanimity. And when we say um, mindfulness is um, non-judging attention, we are talking about equanimity in 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 you know the the beginning of equanimity, because if we do not judge or we try not to judge, or we catch ourselves judging, that is the beginning of equanimity. Equanimity is not, is not uh, a state of um, half-life. <laughs> Unfortun- unfortunately, the, the, you know, there are a number of misunderstandings. Uh, this is quite frequent. You know, equanimous equals amorphous, equals, um, you know very little interest. Um, the tradition is very clear. The, 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 the close enemy of equanimity is indifference. The close enemy is the most insidious one. So when we mistake 
um, um, equanimity for indifference. When we think that uh, equanimity is indifference, we have fallen prey to its <laughs> closest uh, enemy because they look alike, but they are the opposite. So, yes, the, the four Brahma Viharas should practice it, all, of, all four of them. And it can be a wonderful practice, like Monday, Metta, Tuesday, uh, Compassion, um, uh, Wednesday, uh, Mudita, and Thursday, Upekka. And then you, you start again. Or another way is that if you see someone, someone very happy, you practice mudita instead of looking away or <laughs> making some comparison. We are great masters. In. Uh, if you see someone who's obviously suffering, you practice compassion. If you see, don't see either suffering or joy, you practice metta. And you can practice equanimity in any circumstance. I was curious about your remark, uh, remarks about how uh, you can, uh, this experience of practicing and then having some long-term relationship be affected by those. Uh, um, I, I feel like a but I, I didn't fully trust it because uh, uh, I think you, you alluded to this. Uh, is this, um, are you starting to, you know, are you questioning yourself or is this like kind of this uh, circular kind of um, behavior where it becomes, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about this process that you were... Yeah, but what do you mean when you said uh, I didn't trust, I didn't... You use the word trust. Yes, I, I think there are a couple of people I can think of, long-time long time friends who, whom I feel like have grown more distant. And I, I sense it because I may, maybe I'm not as much into the self-pity that they are expressing or the, the, um, uh, kind of the ego satisfaction that they're expressing a, a longing for. And I, I, I just don't respond as much maybe as I used to. And so, um, but I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm not sure that, that I, I, I've been trying to kind of deal with it. I, I felt sad about it, that it's, that it's happened. Do you, do you get negative feedback from them? I don't know if it's negative feedback, but it's, it's, there's a distance. There's a from them or from you? Both? I just feel, yeah, both, that there's a distance, more of a distance in the relationship. Yeah, my opinion... Uh, some, some of what happens is like this mutual distancing seems to be inevitable because uh, you know you, when when you develop a strong interest in say painting and a friend of yours, um, uh, someone who, who you you were sharing everything with before, is not interested at all in painting. Some distance is bound to happen, right? On the other hand, practice um, is good for everything, otherwise it's not practice. So, uh, especially if we keep seeing those persons, there is a lot to practice upon. You know, our disappointment, their disappointment. Um, how, can, how can we be 
like more equanimous in this in this area how can we um be um um you know um feel how can we feel that the practice so to speak is our right without being righteous about the practice without uh starting preaching the practice and at the same time this is a, again this too seems to be a fine art uh the idea shouldn't be to become very uh, kind of esoteric you know um, uh well um doing practices and you know easter you know occult tantric maybe <laughs> uh, um so in other words trying to become simple or as simple as possible in a situation which wasn't expected which is challenging us because here is something which for years has been very or you know very comfortable uh been a refuge maybe and now is not that uh comfortable it's a challenge sometimes people and i think that is a mistake pretend that they haven't changed now we we betraying ourselves simply because if we have changed if we, if we our uh preferences are different from before uh what's wrong with it so we are afraid of the other person judgment but this is excellent for the, our practice what about being myself and you know fully accept the consequences so i think there is a lot uh um as i said if we keep seeing those persons there is a lot to to work upon and developing forms of empathy which were not there before like for instance you mentioned self pity you know people indulging in self pity and maybe since you are practicing you see the the bitterness the uh, you know the separate this um, you know how separative uh self pity is how toxic basically self pity so you try not to be not to practice self pity on yourself so you know a little bit more than the other person and you see that the other person is practicing actively self pity now maybe one word here one word there in a very casual way can help that person instead of we can go oh you know it's impossible you know <laughs> uh or the other person can uh, can feel uh, put off by the fact that we are not indulging in the same way as before and we can um be very um again very simple and you know i found this way it's helping me period it's true it's a fact I can go into that or I can watch 
watch what is happening. Right. And when I related this to um, someone who's been a, a very definite teacher in my life, someone who's been practicing psychiatry, psychotherapy, and neurology longer than I've been alive, and who has been a consultant to me for 12 years for the groups I've run, I explained this and I said, it gives me a certain freedom, but on the other hand, at times I feel somewhat numb because I don't have that intensity of feeling. And the response I got was, you're using meditation to avoid hmm. your feelings. And I said, I don't feel like I'm avoiding my feelings. I feel like I'm actually entering into the experience deeper. Mm -hmm. and, and the response I got from, from her was, well, you are using this practice as a form of brainwashing yourself. Worse and worse. Ready to face your pain, your original pain, you will do that. And, and I left feeling very confused because I've known this person. This person has not been a therapist to me, but has been a teacher. And, and I've relied on this person for consultations in the past. And it, it was disturbing to me to get that kind of response from someone who's been practicing psychotherapy for some 50 years and who has shown a lot of wisdom. So I, I, I'm bringing this up because I think it, to me, it represents a very definite disconnect between uh, psychiatry or psychotherapy and what we do in our spiritual or meditative practice. And I wondered if you could say something. Um, I think just in the in recent years, uh, something interesting is happening. Um, something more substantial in terms of the meeting of psychotherapy and uh, and uh, meditation. I'm specifically referring to the meeting of cognitive therapy, which I don't know much about because my training was in psychodynamic therapy, Jungian therapy. But I, I've known a number of cognitive therapists who practice themse themselves uh, mindfulness meditation. And so, um, and they try to use it. It's proven, for instance, I don't know, you might be familiar with this book, Mindfulness-Based Therapy for Depression, and it's an excellent book by three um, cognitive therapists. And they wanted to... Um, use mindfulness with their patients and uh, they went to see John Kabat-Zinn and he said you first do it <laughs> <laughs> otherwise forget it <laughs> and they, they were good they did it themselves and they did a lot of it and, uh, and so they managed to integrate uh, mindfulness with cognitive therapy and they, they, they have excellent results, especially, um, wrote a number of articles in addition to this book, especially in the field of relapse into depression. So they found that a combination of cognitive therapy with um, practicing mindfulness was very helpful. Now, I find this interesting because this lack of communication between two different languages is happening less and less, at least in this field. You know, the, 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 the language of mindfulness and the language of therapy are meeting, and uh, there is no 
or there is much less misunderstanding because what you were describing is a classical misunderstanding. Uh, you know, meditation is an escapism and all that, and uh, uh, classical. Uh, and now something uh, seems to change, and uh, it's an interesting change. And uh, I suspect we are just at the beginning of it. <laughs> Ruth. A big I personally agree. Somewhere, I, I guess it was again either Buddha Dharma or Shambhala San, there, there was a, a, a forum uh, on depression and uh, they um, uh, came out with a new, uh, with a new word, the new expression a new expression, which is coming out, uh, refer to being on antidepressant and being, a, and being a meditator at the same time. After feeling a lot of shame for taking Zoloft, then people decided, I do take Zoloft. 
And, uh, you know, uh, obviously um, it has to be monitored, and, uh, but there are a number of cases, and uh, there are good pages by Mark Epstein about the benefit that you can derive from uh, a wise use of unattended press. There is a kind of, there can be a kind of a puritanical attitude, like we allow ourselves antibiotics and all the rest of it, except, except uh, antidepressant. La, la, it is perceived as a demonstration, the ultimate demonstration that how much unworthy we are. That we need an antidepressant. We cannot make it by ourselves. How humble. No, this is also true. Uh, I agree. Uh, and Definitely. It's all the endorphins of working out with your body instead of just lying there and thinking that you're doing the right thing. Huh. On, um, yes. Well, that's one of my positive events. But lately, I've gone through a lot of suffering. And, um, so I've been permitting my mind to focus, like you say, on this mindless anger or just going after because I got betrayed and things like this. And I'm very happy to be here today because it's been very helpful. Um, it's something that I don't like to go back to, but, you know, I, I think when I started meditating like 16 years ago, I became very aware with Thich Nhat Hanh about how to become really mindful and taking care of your emotions. And uh, lately, it hasn't been possible for me. It has been no, impossible. Yeah, yeah, I've just been very angry at this person because I've been very betrayed and mm-hmm. extreme abuse. And mm-hmm. um, every time I, I think I can do something about it, but this person can't change, or, or maybe they have very swift and not very nice ways, and they come up like very loving kindness person, but they are inside and now they're not. And so I struggle with this: how do you open up to this? Well, the Buddha talked about wise avoidance. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't say avoidance, wise avoidance, because we are all experts in avoidance. But wise avoidance seems to be something you've thought about and reflected on. you know, consistently. I, I'm not talking about, I don't, I don't know your, your situation enough. But there are uh, cases in which it seems that everything doesn't work and uh, uh, neither one nor the other is, gained, is, is getting any benefit from, from the relationship. And uh, so I think that such, such an instance is an instance of which calls for wise avoidance. Because it seems that, you know, you get more and more toxic, you get more and more poisoned, I mean. And the other person doesn't seem to thrive. Uh, so, uh, what's, what's the point of it? This is just a general example, I don't, I don't know about you. But uh, it is a solution that sometimes people tend to dismiss 
you know, wise avoidance, mm, no? the real compassionate guy uh, never avoids anything. Uh, as uh, famous uh, masters have said, don't throw anyone, anyone out of your heart, which doesn't imply that you don't do wise avoidance. Maybe the only way not to throw out that person from your heart is to <laughs> wisely avoid it. Thank you. Um, presenting your talk in a, in, a, in a manner which was so really truthfully understandable and very meaningful to me. And my way of uh, asking you a question about the practice is to tell you a quick story about my practice and how I'm practicing and see if that matches up with some of the things you said. I've taken a few notes with some of the things you said, not very many, but you talked at one point about putting, it, putting the hands into the mechanism of, of, of suffering. That by dealing with the mind, you you know you, you, you put your hands into the mechanism of suffering. So when I came here about a year ago, this past December, I took some of the courses on meditation. And I began so-called practicing. Well, I don't have a problem practicing around these people sitting on cushions or doing whatever and meditating. My problem, my practice is in my daily life, every single day at work with with my family, etc. So. Um, Last weekend, uh, last Wednesday through Friday, my two grandchildren came up from uh, wonderful grandchildren, a lot of joy, a lot of fun. They came and stayed with us at the house. And this past Sunday was Father's Day. Now, we've had some dysfunctions in our family, and my father, my son and I have gotten, you know, separated a lot. Things have healed a lot since I have came. Since I have gotten better, then suddenly things are becoming much different. Hmm. Because I be, I'm moving, another one of your notes, which also exists in my mind, from reactivity to response. Mm -hmm. So Father's Day was Sunday. Now, in previous years, we waited to see if somebody would call and say congratulations for being Father's Day or Happy Father's Day. You sit around and you mope and you wonder, and they call at 4 o'clock, and then maybe that's too late in the day for you because don't they aren't you important enough to call in the morning? And all this <laughs> right? I mean, this is the, these are the stories that turn around and creating this hurricane of dukkha, right? Right, right. Okay, thank you, thank you. <coughs> so I, 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 I have a practice, and this is my practice. You know, I had a great time with those grandchildren. They are wonderful. And they give me all the love and the hugging and the running after, and I am the universe, the two little boys. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call my son first thing in the morning, and I'm going to wish him a happy Father's Day. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm going to wish him a happy because you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be a grandfather. <laughs> and I deflated this whole, whole balloon filled with merda. <laughs> digesting all day long, right? So that's how, you know, in effect, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing. And it relates to something else you said. You know, by controlling the thoughts, you create, you can create your positive behaviors. That, that the reality is created by the stories that you want to tell yourself in your head. Mm -hmm. That that really makes things happen. You know, because if he calls at 4 o'clock and he isn't friendly enough and all of those things. That's, that's how I really, you know, related to the things that you were saying. Correct. <laughs> and you know something? If I was 100% wrong, 
and he's still in a, and he is perhaps say an ungrateful wretch, just for the purpose of discussion. I didn't have a bad day over it. I avoided all the dukkha. So I can keep my calmness, which is not easy for us to have come from Trapani, <laughs> you know, to be calm and to be in a mindful state. But I love your talk, Professor. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for your validation. Believe me, it's a big question that you answered by saying you're right. <laughs> okay, shall we sit for five minutes or less? Two minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.